Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am thrilled to welcome my dear friend, Dr. Robin M. Franklin Jr., who is joining us to talk about one of the fundamental roles of parents, helping our children understand the difference between right and wrong. I can't wait to, to dig into this. Dr. Franklin is an ordained minister, theologian, and academic administrator who is a senior advisor to the president of Emory University and the James T. and Berta R. Laney Professor in Moral Leadership at Emory. He previously served as the 10th president of Morehouse College. He's the author of four books, and his most recent book, Moral Leadership, Integrity, Courage, and Imagination, was published in 2020. He and his wife, Dr. Cheryl Goffney Franklin, have three children. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Robert. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. So good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of your show. Oh, thank you so much. I am so thrilled that you're able to join me today to talk about how to help our children develop a moral compass, hmm. how we can best share our values with them, and so much more. You have a wonderfully unique perspective on this subject, being a man of the cloth, and you're the first on our podcast, <laughs> a professor of moral leadership, and, and as the former president of Morehouse College, you were responsible for shaping the values of hundreds and hundreds of young Black men. Plus, you have three children of your own. So there's a lot of expertise there, and I'm looking forward to tapping into it. So when we talk about developing a moral compass, we're talking about the question of how do we learn right from wrong and how do we act accordingly? So for a lot of people, that starts with their faith. And I understand from you that your faith was grounded in your childhood. So can you talk about where and how you grew up and how faith played a role in your childhood? I was part of the extraordinary migration during the 1940s when African-American families began to depart the southern rural areas for ur the urban south. And then some families engaged in a second uh, migration. It was two-part for many. And our, for our family, we left uh, Mississippi and went on to Chicago. So I was reared on the south side of Chicago. My parents made the journey, met in Chicago. Uh, the church was an important center of their social lives. I think they, that's where they met. My grandmother, who was very active in the church and in fact was a leader in the church, was uh, a teacher, was a missionary, what they call a home missionary. So she was the president of the home missionary board. Mm -hmm. And my mother was kind of watching and following. And consequently, because I was so often with my mother, and my mother worked as a church secretary and a financial secretary. Uh, I was deeply imprinted by all of that. But it was the example of moral leadership that my grandmother provided. And I'll just mention very quickly two mm -hmm. dimensions of that. On one hand, so here we are on the south side of Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, a time of uh, you know, these extraordinary and famous street gangs in Chicago during those days. And so I was right there in that mix. And Black families worked hard to protect their, their children and their families. And I watched my grandmother one day. She had a garden next door to the house, a small urban garden before it was in vogue. She would <laughs> grow and harvest uh, vegetables and and then prepare wonderful fresh meals uh, in her kitchen and then take them to people who were sick and shut in. 
And so um, one day she, she heard a commotion outside and two groups of young men were about to fight. It was right in front of her, our house. We live with my grandmother initially, so we were in her house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked out. I was about eight years old and I saw these guys are really about to, this is going to be a great fight. I hope I can just sit here and watch this. <laughs> but um Instead, she comes out and disrupts everything because she ran out of the kitchen with her aprons flowing uh, down the stairs right into the street and stood in between these two groups of muscle-bound, tough homeboys. Wow. And she looked at them and said, you know, I've fed many of your mothers and, and some of you when you were sick from that little garden over there. And I had a kid who got shot in Italy as, as he was a, during the World War II. He was a soldier. Mm-hmm. No mother wants to receive that phone call that her child has been injured. And none of no mother's going to get that call today. You are not fighting here today. And I watched mm-hmm. these guys. First of all, I thought, oh, come, Grandma, you're ruining my reputation as an eight-year-old <laughs> in the street. You know? But um, I watched these guys. They looked at her, looked at each other, looked back at her, looked at each other, and they began to back away. And mm-hmm. there was no fight that day. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I could look down the block. Other families were watching this, but no one else intervened. Mm-hmm. So for me, that became the power of moral leadership. One person can turn the tide. One person can set a tone in a community, in a neighborhood that mm-hmm. can make a difference and save lives. The garden was a place of nurture and growth and generosity for her. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. other thing is that she would prepare these wonderful Southern home-cooked meals. And both her friends, the other missionaries in their starched white uh, garments and nurses' caps would gather before they went down, down to church. Mm-hmm. They would eat together. But wow. then... My uncles, her her sons, mm-hmm. also had their friends, and these were not church-going guys. In fact, they would come, <laughs> arrive on the front porch of our house to eat, and they were inebriated, and, you know, and I just thought, this is amazing. Here are these, you know, the church women, the sanctified women, the saints, <laughs> with the winos at the same table. And I said, our church is not that inclusive. So I realized my grandmother <laughs> was this shepherd, this is pastor, this extraordinary church. And again, that imprinted me that community has to be inclusive. It doesn't mm-hmm. pronounce judgment. It feeds people. It breaks mm-hmm. bread and pours beverage and enables people to eat and to laugh. So uh, that was my experience. <laughs> Such a wonderful story that that um, that there's so much to unpack there. First of all, I have this image of your grandmother standing in the middle of the street between these two tough groups of tough looking guys. Mm-hmm. That's a courageous thing to do. And and so many people, particularly now with the proliferation of guns, would be less inclined mm-hmm. to get in the middle. But what propels you to do that, what propels some people to do that is, is a faith base. And I want to I want to just touch on that for a minute before we move more into the more general origins of of moral courage and and a moral compass. This will be the first podcast in which we've ever explored faith uh, with our parent audience because first of all, it's a fairly personal thing. But um, in the black community, the black community has always been focused on faith, but we don't talk a lot about how generations going forward talk to their children about faith. I mean expose them to religion. Um, and I, I know that there are communities in which 
they are legacies of of faith and they are deep generations of the mm-hmm. same churches. But what with people moving around a lot and children leaving their parents and setting up their families elsewhere, I think it's harder now for parents to sort of have ingrained in them mm-hmm. how they bring religion to their families, particularly if there's not a church in the neighborhood they want to belong to. So let's say you want to have some sort of faith base in your family and you want to start early. What do you think parents, how should they be thinking about talking to their children about this? Wonderful question. Let's think of faith as the process of learning to make meaning. Uh, Faith is the art of meaning making in an unpredictable world. And I think that faith provides the foundations for the compass that every single person evolves and and refines over time. Their Mm -hmm. sense of what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what is praiseworthy, what is blameworthy. We Mm -hmm. learn that. Much of what we learn early early on in life is by observing others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Plato, Aristotle, great uh, ancient philosophers talked about the household as the first seminar in moral education and moral mm-hmm. psychology. It's by watching parents, watching parents struggle to make decisions, uh, assign value to certain actions or uh, entities. And then kids get a chance to test that. Well, this is what mom says is good. Do I believe that now myself? That comes a little later. Mm-hmm. But early on, uh, they, they, they are careful observers and imitators. And I think it's important to provide young people with that foundational sense of right and wrong, but also to expose them to other ways of seeing things. So what Mm -hmm. I didn't share in my narrative is that although my uh, mother and and grandmother uh, were kind of pillar uh, members of our local congregation, my dad was also present and also attended often. But I think that there were some some issues he had with uh, the particular male uh, religious authority in charge. My dad was very acerbic about pointing these uh, out discrepancies. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom was having none of that. She was prepared to defend. So interesting approaches to how we uh, align up relative to leadership and even to uh, a code of, 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 of values. But my father would occasionally take my brother and I to the University of Chicago's chapel, Rockefeller Chapel, where we would hear and experience a very different approach to worship, a, a meaning making. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we love that too. It was so interesting to be in this Gothic cathedral uh, with these choirs and so on. And then we go to, you know, to mom's church and it was kind of, as one uh, author put it, high voltage religion, where, <laughs> you know, there's those good old Baptist Pentecostal AME uh, choirs <laughs> and drum sets and bands. Yeah, oh, and, you know, some of your <laughs> listeners, viewers will recognize names like Andre Crouch mm-hmm. and, um, uh, uh, Edwin Hawkins. They were young people, and they came to our 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 particular church. Wow. In any case, uh, the importance of having diverse inputs and exposures, so that they get a chance to sort of figure out for themselves how they will be in the world as meaning making creatures. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one important book I'll mention because some will want to look learn more about this topic. That book is titled Stages of Faith by James Fowler. 
James Fowler was my professor at Harvard Divinity School, and I happened to be there during the years when he was developing what he called his stages of faith development. And I commend this because it's a fascinating sort of six or seven stages. The fundamental vision was that faith is not a noun that one possesses, I have faith or don't have faith. Faith is a verb. Faith is the act of interpreting and construing reality in certain ways, of, the, of making meaning and finding purpose in life. Uh, faith is the art and act of connecting to the, an ultimate concern. As one great theologian, Paul Tillich, put it, he said, people may not be comfortable with God language, but everyone, every human has an ultimate concern. <laughs> and uh, we should seek to discover what that is, help children find the ultimate concern in their lives. And as you know, many of them find that in, in nature, in uh, uh, working on climate justice, uh, becomes a kind of quasi-religion, and yet there are nature-based religions, so it has good grounding, even in African traditions. But uh, Fowler says we move from, and I'll simplify his theories, from uh, making meaning through understanding stories, these, the great stories, for instance, of the Bible mm -hmm. that you and I were probably reared on. And, I, you know, you, you hear the story of David and Goliath, and you can never forget that story. Mm -hmm. This great story of the exodus of an oppressed people leaving and the hardships. The great story of... Um, of a prodigal son, even though it's just a parable. But you hear that story, you say, wow, yeah, yeah, I know that guy, uh, that girl. And so it's stories that help shape our moral compass. We, we, we observe something in life and say, how does that fit with the story I learned mm -hmm. of what's valuable, what's important, what's good and bad? This uh, a middle phase has to do with conformity. Tell me the rules, tell me the dogma, Tell me the doctrines, and hence the importance of Sunday school and other, for many churches, that's their way of conveying, this is what we believe about God, about uh, heaven, about salvation, about this and that. And, and you go through that, and that's learning and internalizing, and you become a member by conforming, by internalizing those practices and teachings. teachings. Mm -hmm. uh, an another phase is how we individualize or individuate, as he puts it. And it's making faith my faith, my voice. And that's a wonderful process. And it often happens in during the adolescent college years. Uh, I had an opportunity to observe that at Morehouse, and we can talk more about that. Mm -hmm. But that's where it is exceedingly important to provide lots of kind of um, informed uh, intellectually stimulating resources that the book that changes a person's life in the way that, for instance, for me, the autobiography of Malcolm X was one of those books. Mm -hmm. Reading, you know, uh, Richard Wright's uh, Black Boy, uh, in, any number of texts, and often it's in literature, not in not in a, a religious text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then finally is the process of becoming a more a universalizing faith, as James Fowler puts it. He says, not everyone reaches that level, but that level where you can see among the great traditions, the big five, as it were, of Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, among those, that there are certain 
kind of unifying dimensions, common ground. And mm-hmm. a universalizing faith says, I can see value in all of them. I should myself learn from all, drink from all five wells, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so that's, that's, in summary, what Fowler offers us in his book, Stages of Faith, mm-hmm. and helps us think about what are we doing to nurture our faith through reading, through travel, through visit, and through mm-hmm. friendship, developing friendships with people from other traditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, that is so great. Um, I, I want to back up to the one of the the earliest one uh, because it really struck a chord. The understanding of the stories. You're, you're right. We all know. Uh, David and Goliath, the prodigal son, I have to confess, I always had a little trouble with that one. <laughs> that one, yeah. I think we need to learn lessons from that one. But yes. but yeah, the uh, Noah's Ark. And and one of the things um I struggled with when my children were little was that no one wanted to go to Sunday school. They preferred to sit with us in church, which I th- was fine, except they would draw and not get that much out of it because it really wasn't designed for their them. So I decided to um homeschool them in Sunday school. And yeah. and I should say this. I am. I consider myself a person of faith, and uh, but but I have not. And I did grow up in the church, but I would not be one who you would think would normally dive into homeschooling. Uh, homeschooling Sunday school. I mean, I I never aspired to be a Sunday school teacher. But your point about the stories, it was really important to me that my children know some of these stories, and I couldn't figure out where they were going to get them from <laughs> if if they didn't go to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing for parents out there who feel similarly. It's amazing how many resources there are to to bring in into your home. And the other reason, and I'll, I'll just I have to say this: the other reason I wanted to do this is because I figured my kids would ultimately be in a church, and I didn't want to have the the only children that didn't know some of the 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 ritual some like the didn't know the lord's prayer didn't know i mean <laughs> you can't you can't raise up a child who just just stands there with their mouth closed when everybody else is saying those things so <laughs> mm, mm. it was more for me than for them and that is just, but in any, event, <laughs> in any event i just want to emphasize the storytelling is is really 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 important yes, yes. can i just commend you for the extraordinary courage it takes to take on home Sunday schooling. <laughs> and I want to commend that to others. If if your kids are saying, look, we don't want no part of this organized, <laughs> formal religious tradition, do it at home and yeah. you lead it. Uh, you know, you have to prepare yourself a little bit. I commend you. I love that. Well, you know what we would do? There, uh, there are lots of resources. I mean, if anybody's familiar with the game Apples to Apples, there's actually an Apples to Apples Bible edition. I mean, there's Monopoly Bible. There's lots of Bible editions of things, so you can play games and learn it. But also, what and I have to attribute this to my husband. My husband would find stories in the newspaper that presented some sort of moral dilemma, and each week we would just look at a story where the 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 right way wasn't apparent. There were sort of different ways to decide what was right and what was wrong. And we would just talk about, well, what would you do if you were in this situation? I mean, aside from the actual information I wanted them to get, this was my way or, or both of our ways of trying to impart our values. We were not only mm-hmm. saying, learn these stories, but it's important to us as a family that these stories be carried on. Yes. Uh, I, I will say, I, I also love the stage you mentioned about when children begin to to absorb the lessons and then figure out which ones work for them. Mm-hmm. This is the, the adolescent stage. And that's where 
where they're making, where they're in positions, they're a little more independent, they're in positions where they're going to have to make these kind of judgments on their own. And I will just say about that, I'd love for you to talk sort of more about how parents can influence that. But the goal for me, as they were growing up, I used to say this all the time, I wanted there to be, as they moved away, as they went into junior high school and high school, I wanted there to be in the back of their head, this this phrase, my mother would kill me if, and then a line, <laughs> and then if whatever they were about to do, mm-hmm. I wanted them to know my mother would, they would have that phrase, my mother would kill me if I, and then this blank. And then I would say, that is not to say that you should never do it, because mm-hmm. I can't control for that. I mean, you're going to be in circumstances where you will still be tempted to do this. But all I want is that phrase. So at Mm. least you know if you're about to do something Mm. that is straddling that line between right and wrong, (laughs) that you stopped and made a conscious leap in there versus Mm. just a little long (laughs) into it. (laughs) That's a wonderful and easy to apply moral rule or rule of thumb. (laughs) And I think it's brilliant what you all did. That's I love that. (laughs) <laughs> well, I thank you, but it was it, it it's still effective. I hope they are now in their all in their twenties. I hope it yes. still works. I hope they're yes. still doing that. So, so let me ask you from your perspective as as um uh, a a man of the cloth again. What happens if you go through all this and your child rejects it? I mean, just rejects yeah. Yeah. the faith, the religion. I, I I imagine if they went to another one, you can deal with that, but. How can parents who are really grounded, let's say you're a parent, you're really grounded in your faith and it's not taking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that really uh, places a burden on the parent, the adult, to be discerning and thoughtful about how to approach the evolving personality, the warp and woof of this unique human being that you have helped to produce and rear, and to learn to respect that and treat it with a certain sacred care. And so they're still on this journey. They are searching. They are still trying to make meaning, find purpose, find who they're called to be and what they're called to do. And that's another dimension of what faith does in terms of assigning identity and providing mission, a sense of action in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, not simply being a good, you know, pure spiritual person, but also mm-hmm. being a moral agent. And so uh, where does that come from? And again, it's exposure to varieties of role models and examples. Parents have to be secure enough to enable and expose their children to other examples of people who are doing important and interesting things. And so that may be through watching a film together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought of, you know, watching <laughs> uh, uh, Spike Lee's brilliant interpretation of Malcolm X in the movie X or of Gandhi. Expose younger people to these these personalities and ask, what do you think? And how, you know, because none of them were perfect. I love Oscar Wilde's wonderful observation that uh, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And I think it's it's that confidence that the people we regard as holy and the great saint, they all had their challenges. They all made mistakes. They sinned, as, as the traditional Christian language uses that notion. But every sinner has a future. And there is possibility for going forward with, with joy. And, 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 and uh, it's possible. So expose them to other uh, examples, respect them, give them a little space to walk alone. Remember, everyone has an ultimate concern. 
mm-hmm. and uh, to invite them to talk about that rather than preaching to them. Uh, you've done that, perhaps, but instead now <laughs> begin to ask probing questions, open-ended questions. Allow them to do the talking, and you listen carefully and ask, wonder what, what they're wrestling with here, and are, are these questions of identity or of value, or whom can I love, who, who, shall, who will I be as I grow up, and what am I supposed to do in this life? All of those questions, especially, again, as you pointed out, they tend to cluster and emerge robustly during the adolescent years, part of which are spent often in, you know, traditionally in parents' households, but then they move out and either they go away to school or to the military or what have you. They're continuing to do that work. Who am I? The identity question. Um Industry, as the, I'm thinking of categories from the great uh, developmental psychologist, uh, Eric Erickson, his book titled Eight Ages of Man, but it was Childhood and Society was the title of the book. And he talks about the, the three great eyes of the identity, who am I, industry, what am I going to do, what will I be when I grow up, and then third, the eye of intimacy, who will I love? Who, who loves me? And that those are kind of the almost every day that kids, our kids are waking up with those, that agenda. We should keep that in mind and perhaps help expose them to resources, books, films, poetry, uh, and interesting people. Invite them to be engaged with. Hopefully they're meeting those people in high school and other places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, that's a really important point. As children explore their faith, it, it, and, and, and you very aptly pointed out, their ultimate concern is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily have to grow in, in, an, in a standard religious form. And particularly, you find, I certainly went through it, and I'm sure a lot of people do, you find that there's a lot of tension when children are, are and young people are trying to figure out who they are, and then looking at the very specific tenets of different religions that seem to argue against them being themselves. I mean, and so I think from, from ultimately, everybody's got to work it out for themselves. But I think from a parental perspective, if you are very focused on your religious, uh, your religion, your specific brand of faith, and as much as you would want your child to follow that path, and as much as you view what your child does through the eyes of that path, it's really important to give them their own space <laughs> and Absolutely. not be offended by them them challenging it. I mean, you know, Doubting Thomas was there for a reason, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, oh, hey, you're a biblical scholar. This is very good. You know, Monday school, I'm telling right. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just use two simple phrases that might help parents think about how to approach that somewhat um unsettling experience to hear have, have the kid come home. I remember what it was like for me to return from the first year at Morehouse. I had just read uh, Karl Marx and Charles Darwin and, and Sigmund Freud and Frederick Nietzsche. I came, I was, I'm having nothing to do with it. What do you mean? I'm not going to church today. Thank you very much. And all of that we'll call adolescent rebellion. But um, my mother was patient and she said, well, come and see the people. They want to see you. Just you don't have to, you know, get into it. And and I said, OK, I do want to see the people. Those folks love me. So that meant a lot. But respect the mystery. 
Respect the mystery. Part of what religion has to do is as it connects us to an ultimate concern to God or however, whatever language you're comfortable with there, is 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 engaging the mysteries in life mm. and in the mysteries of our own personalities, the mystery of your child's personality. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you sort of, you got them, you understand them, and then they'll do or say things that, but where did this come from? Right. Once again, the mystery is present in everyday life. And as mature people, the adults in the room have to learn to uh, practice the discipline of respecting the mystery. The other phrase that comes to mind here is trusting the spirit. I'll, I'll just put it in those terms. And that is that if your child is truly earnestly grappling with making meaning, discovering herself or himself, identity, industry, uh, intimacy, the, all those key questions, then uh, just trust that. Tr- trust that process. They'll, they'll get it. They'll get it right, right for them. And mm-hmm. it, it's likely to be a bit eclectic, It'll be a gumbo. It'll be borrowing from various and sundry resources because, as you pointed out earlier, it's a part of becoming an individual. Mm -hmm. They're putting it together. It's like tailored clothing. It's for them. They're not buying it off the rack. And often churches and mosques and temples offer you these pre-made formulae uh, for the good person and the good life. And that's valuable. But some of us are going to just have to work it out for ourselves. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's another area, I'll just name it without getting into it, but many theologians, artists, musicians, and others have pointed out the damage done by heavy-handed authoritarian religion mm-hmm. and applications and impositions and enforcements of religious teachings or definitions, narrow definitions of who the good mm-hmm. person is and what the good life is. Mm-hmm. And we've heard from all, all sorts of kids, uh, our, our kids, LGBTQ community and, mm-hmm. and others who say, that's not me. And, and, and the tradition doesn't allow me to become who I am. Respect the mystery Trust the spirit, Mm -hmm. give them space. They may have to go leave uh, your community, your home space, Mm -hmm. as they are on their search to make meaning. But in time, if we trust, we'll find a place of meeting uh, at at a later time. Absolutely. And and as you were saying this, I was, it's so valuable to hear, but I was also thinking that while this is hard for parents, what helps you? respect the mystery and what helps you trust the process is all that you've done by your own um, actions and by your yes. your early days of imparting your values to your children or not even your values, but helping your children understand the difference between right and wrong to the extent that we demonstrate these qualities and encourage our children to. I mean, this is all basic stuff that we're doing already. So it may sound a little scary to sort of turn away from things that are really core to your being when you when your child is not accepting them. But as you so wonderfully just said, it's really them working it out. So so yeah, I love that. Respect mm-hmm. the mystery. <laughs> because it, it it is. I mean, no one who is a parent um does not understand that there is a great there, <laughs> there is mystery. So what happens if your concepts of right and wrong have to change? Mm-hmm. I mean if they're if if the fluidity, I guess, of right and wrong, although that's a weird concept, you would think there's just right and wrong, but over time there are things that um seemed right, but are no longer right. 
you you ran Morehouse, a, a predominantly black all male institution, which um, what I know about Morehouse men is they are strong and they are brilliant and they are really confident <laughs> and they are confident in their maleness. But confidence in maleness has had to change because as our society challenges the notion of male heterosexual dominance and there being a fairly limited way to be a man, <laughs> relatively limited, and then particularly for black men, there's, there's a very specific way. And society is beginning to challenge that. How do you shift away from sort of one way of thinking um, and give to give the students there the tools to become sort of modern men. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful and nuanced question. And I'll try to answer simply as I reflect on the challenges I faced as I arrived. There was enormous anxiety among the alumni community, but even in the larger community about, let's say, new, innovative, competing understandings of manhood, of maleness, just to use these binaries. And I recognize it's important to respect the mystery of, of gender and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to allow for multiple understandings of how we live into that identity uh, to, to, to flourish on the campus. And because there was anxiety, I said, I need to deal with the anxiety first, the emotions, and then we'll get to the issues. What are mm -hmm. our definitions of, of, uh, of manhood? And mm -hmm. so I affirmed, I tried to affirm the values that Morehouse had uh, inculcated in, in men over, over these generations. But then having affirmed that tradition, that approach, that large path and familiar path, I began to talk about and expose them to other uh, understandings and tried to do this in a, you know, in, in a subtle, uh, respectful way, but reminded them that, uh, for instance, in tensions between um, uh, gay men and, and, and straight men on our campus, reminded the uh, straight brothers that, um, you know, Malcolm X had friends uh, like uh, James Baldwin, uh, Martin Luther King's one of his best friends, Bayard Rustin, black gay mm -hmm. men who mm -hmm. are also contributing to the common good, to the common struggle. Mm -hmm. And I made them read essays of of, uh, of Bayard Rustin and his autobiography. And of course, everyone's trying to read James Baldwin. He's so brilliant. And I had, fortunately, terrific student leaders and role models for a respectful dialogue, an open-minded dialogue. And we saw that we were all working toward the same ends of trying to mm -hmm. uplift people who were uh, uh, oppressed. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel, you know, there was some measure of um, progress made there. Also, though, because we had some times where people said, "We this is not for us. We can't, the, this old Morehouse model of the Morehouse mm -hmm. man is so oppressive we can't stay. And so we lost a few students. Mm -hmm. But in the larger scheme of morality, you know, the, the, there's kind of people want everything to be black and white, right or wrong, with crystal clarity. But then there's this thing called the gray area that emerges as we as we grow and develop. And you sort of see and you have to puzzle through and you have to apply. I love your example of providing uh our kids with uh, examples and, and from real life, from the newspaper, where mm -hmm. moral decision, discernment, choices have to be made. And then mm -hmm. look at how they make those decisions. 
Mm-hmm. And one part of it is the tradition, what you learned in your household. My mama would kill me if I did. You know, <laughs> that's an important element. But then there's also reading uh, other other approaches to things that we might find in literature as well as in books on religion and philosophy. Schools across the United States, across the globe, have been grappling hmm. with these same issues, and particularly single sex schools. But but back to to Morehouse. There's also the element that things have changed with respect to male-female relationships in terms of um, respecting women and consent being mm. much mm. more of a, um, I, I will say, nuanced but critical um, uh, component of of men and women getting together. I imagine it's any genders getting together, but I'm just thinking about um, how on college campuses everywhere trying to re-educate perhaps in some instances young men or Mm -hmm. sort of tweak the value of how you interact with someone that you're trying to get to know. And I like what you said about the gray area because it's very tempting. And I will say this, even now as Mm. issues arise with accusations of mistreatment, Mm. there's a tendency to want to see it in black and white. I mean, this used to be okay behavior. Now it's absolutely bad behavior and therefore... Mm anything that falls into this this mm. bucket bad behavior, but there are still grays. I mean, yeah. human interaction is complicated. You have a group of men. How do you get them to start understanding that stuff that might have been acceptable or 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 um back in the day or when they were growing up is absolutely not acceptable now. Yes. And then as parents, how do we convey that? The two words that come to mind are are expectations the need to be clear about expectations, what we expect from each other, and then contracts, developing, talking through uh, what we are committed to doing, what we will not do, and Mm -hmm. what's okay for me and what's not okay, to talk that through. And I think that what I discovered, uh, many young men, generally speaking, not all, were not familiar with that role of talking it through. They had internalized a set of images some of them exceedingly, we would refer to that as toxic masculinity today. Mm-hmm. So much of it uh, proclaimed in some of the music they were listening to mm-hmm. and some of the harsh, I, I almost hesitate to identify a category, but I mean, we know what, what, what young people are listening mm-hmm. to. And and these you hear this on campus. I would walk to campus. I hear this in the dorms. There were a couple of occasions where I would walk up and knock on the door and say, hey, brother, I heard your music coming in, you shouting out. And, and uh, this artist is talking about... Uh, calling women out of their names and uh, this bad behavior and violence and money and this and that. <laughs> I said, um, you know, at Morehouse, we're trying to take a different approach to some of this stuff, man. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he, you know, sheepishly looked at, yeah, okay. I, guess. I said, do you think that that fits with what we're trying to do? And he, he sort of thought it through and I'll turn the music down, Dr. Franklin. <laughs> maybe I'll play something else. <laughs> I said, and then I then the old guy in me came out and I'm reaching for the old script. You know, back in my in Motown, they sang about love and you know, holding hands and friendship. <laughs> Is there an equivalent in your in your uh, gangster rap culture? And he looked at me, he's like, Are you kidding? <laughs> you know? 
But it, it was that kind of process. I could have come in and slammed them once I had a dean of students who did that. It didn't turn out well. So I said, don't judge these guys. They're trying to figure this out. We're all creating our narratives and our roadmaps. And yes, they're going to sample. Let them sample. But as I like the way you put it earlier, but at some level, we also want to call them back to true north in their lives. The, mm-hmm. the compass points to north, and that is where we're headed. And mm-hmm. uh, some behavior is just the opposite of that. So let's talk about expectations. Let's talk about the agreements we will have even as we date in a relationship. How do we create more healthy relationships? Um And I think if we can equip our daughters and sons, all of our kids with those scripts, the need to have the script and to help revise the script. That's what I like about your question, because these young men were hearing, look, we grew up on the tough streets of, you know, know, Harlem with Brooklyn and Compton. We arrived here. We know we take what we want. We articulate it, but we grab, we fight, we... uh, and then I say, brother, you know, there's another way. Yes, I understand that's, that's, that was that way. And whatever gang member or big brother, whoever modeled that for you, I, okay, respect. Now it's your turn to write your own script. They mm-hmm. really seem to feel empowered by that. I said, you don't have to do it that way. The sister's mm-hmm. telling you she does not like that. She does not like to be shouted to or, or the profanity-laced uh, comments. I said, is there another way? And mm-hmm. that's where the growth and the exciting mm-hmm. development occurs. And I, I again, I had to, I watched this in this extraordinary laboratory occur every day. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to understand that what comes out at the end is not a hundred percent what we would do. Yes, but it is. It's grounded in. It, it made sense. Their pathway made sense mm-hmm. to them, and it makes sense to us. So I, of course, you know, could conti- I could continue all these conversations. I cannot end this, though, without having you talk to me, and it dovetails nicely, about the five wells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I will just quickly say that I first heard this when my son graduated from high school, and you very generously spoke to the class. That was many years ago now, and this these wells came out of Morehouse, did they not? Yes. When I when I was first appointed president, I understood that in the early days of my service as president, media and alumni and others would ask, "Well, so what is it that you bring? What value do you add? What is a Morehouse man?" Mm-hmm. I thought that was the most critical question, and I wanted to have a thoughtful concise, memorable response. And over time, it took a few months, but I developed this short list. How did I develop the list of virtues, as I referred to them? I looked at five or six of the most prominent Morehouse graduates, the Morehouse men who defined Morehouse, Martin Luther King, Mayor Maynard Jackson, Julian Bond, Spike Lee and others. And I thought, okay, what if you step back and ask, what do all of these leaders have in common? One of the things that struck me was that they were all well-read, and that's the first well. Mm -hmm. The secondly, they were well-spoken, well-traveled, well-dressed and well-balanced. Those became the five wells. Mm-hmm. This is a way of capturing all the fancy language and verbiage and prose of our mission statement. Uh, the, the great experience was uh, by, by 2008 when I delivered this speech to the incoming freshman class. And when the parents heard, we're tr- trying to produce at Morehouse Renaissance men, 
Renaissance people with social conscience and global perspective who are known for the five wells of being well-read, well-spoken, well-traveled, well-dressed, and well-balanced. Student, The parents gave me a standing O. All of the parents are standing, shouting. And the kids and the young men are sitting there, oh, we're not so hot about this, you know, <laughs> well-dressed. What do you mean exactly? <laughs> but, but what was interesting, Carol, is two weeks later, my vice president of student affairs said, hey, Dr. Frank, I think that I think the five wells is catching on. Yesterday, I saw a student with the five wells on a T-shirt. Now, we, <laughs> we didn't produce any T-shirts. This kid, and he showed it to me later in the cafeteria. Five wells right there, well read. They were proud to claim that set of expectations of what the school, and this is my parting word to the community. We need to be clearer about our expectations, what we expect, even as we respect the the mystery and trust the process. And those mm-hmm. expectations will be internalized and may take those young people a long way in life. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Franklin, I thank you so, so, so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Before we actually wrap up, though, I'm going to ask you to please play the GCP bonus round very uh-huh. quickly. Um, you just tell me your favorite poem, and it could be a saying, a quote, a psalm. You could ask that of any of my students, and they would all say the same thing. And it's a it's a quote, a sentence from a medieval rabbi, Maimonides. It simply says, the world is equally balanced between good and evil, and your next act will tip the scale. <laughs> Great. And it's so perfect for this conversation. <laughs> and and finally, two of your favorite children's books, and they can be books you grew up with or books that you remember reading to your kids. Yes, yes. Well, the one that immediately comes to mind is The Little Prince by Saint-Exupéry. <laughs> it is such an extraordinary story about, about journey, uh, about uh, being lost, about uh, finding oneself through friendship. Uh, about sharing, about meeting strangers, and negotiating everyday life in an unpredictable world with a sense of a, a center, a sense of value, and a moral compass. So The Little Prince is something I certainly commend. But the other I was suggesting is is uh, the New Testament story or parable of the prodigal son and what happens when a young person reared in a loving, secure household decides, I have to make it on my own. They depart and encounter difficult times. And while there, while experimenting, while trying things that they would never have uh, tried at home, there's that sense, uh, I remember that I am loved in that household. I can go home. The light will be on for me. And it was that recognition at his most difficult moment, I want to go back. I want to tur- turn around and convert. And and um, the possibility of reconciliation and of re-entry, of leaving that difficult place, uh, being lost or incarcerated, whatever it might be, and returning home to a, a context of love and nurture mm-hmm. and acceptance that makes all the difference in our lives. Oh, that was wonderful. <laughs> so so again, I, I thank you so much for being with us. Um, it, it's been a great conversation and you know that I really enjoy talking to you and I'm sure parents listening 
really appreciate your advice and and your experiences. Thank you, Carol. I, I listen to all of your shows, by the way. You have a brilliant mind and a mellifluous voice. So oh. I enjoy listening to you and learning from you. So thank oh, you for this. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being with us, Robert, and talking with us so wonderfully about how our children can develop a moral compass. I, I learned a lot. I hope we all did. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed the conversation and that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Brown Control Parenting blog at www.browncontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.